Welcome to StoryWise, the podcast designed to give you the in-depth story behind some of our top storytellers as a way to inform, motivate, and inspire you to believe that you too can make your dreams a reality. My name is Jen Grisanti. I am the Story Career Consultant at Jen Grisanti Consultancy, Inc., a writer's consultancy designed to help you accomplish your writing goals and reach your career destination through one-on-one consults, seminars, and teleseminars. And I am so excited to have with me as my guest tonight, David Hudgens, who is currently a co-executive producer on Parenthood and was an executive producer on Friday Night Lights. Let me tell you a little bit about David. David Hudgens is originally from Dallas, Texas, a graduate of Duke University. He began his career in the United States Senate as a staff assistant to Senator Albert Gore, Jr., He then obtained his law degree from SMU and spent eight years working as a trial and appellate lawyer in Texas with a large downtown Dallas law firm. In 2001, Mr. Hudgens quit the practice of law to pursue screenwriting full-time. After the sale of his feature screenplay, Scottsboro, to LeVar Burton's Eagle Nation's Films, In 2003, Mr. Hudgens took a job as a staff writer on the WB television show Everwood. He spent three seasons writing uh, for the production, rising to the rank of co-producer. He then moved to the NBC drama Friday Night Lights, where he served for three seasons as a writer and co-executive producer. In 2009, Mr. Hudgens created and ran Past Life for Warner Brothers Television, a one-hour drama that aired on the Fox Broadcasting Network. Mr. Hudgens also returned to Friday Night Lights, where he served as an executive producer on the show's fifth and final season. Currently, he is under an overall deal at NBC Studios, where he serves as a writer and co-executive producer on the hour drama Parenthood, and he is also developing multiple projects for both film and television. In its freshman season, Friday Night Lights was the recipient of a Peabody Award for Excellence in Television Broadcasting. For his work on the show, Mr. Hudgens has received four nominations for a Writers Guild Award. Mr. Hudgens is a frequent speaker and panelist at industry events, and he is a member of board of a member of the board of trustees of the Humanitas Foundation. Mr. Hudgens lives in Los Angeles with his wife Megan and his four sons, Jackson, Brooks, Reed, and Owen. Wow. Oh my gosh. Isn't it wild like hearing all that? Is that wild? Like do you <laughs> yes, sit there and is. go, whose life is that? <laughs> I sit there and go, my resume may need a, a punch up. <laughs> Somebody needs to do a pass. <laughs> no, I love I love your bio. I think it's amazing and I Thank think your you. accomplishments are amazing and four kids. I'm like, oh my gosh, how do you when do you write? Like how Whenever do you... I can. Yeah. <laughs> um I write typically at night, to be honest with you. I, I mean, that's that's the time that I feel the most creative. You know, after the kids have gone to bed, I, I tend to go up and, and uh, have a good burst of creativity. But when you're on script, you know, if you have a script due, you, you write during the day and in the morning, whatever you can. But given my preference, I will write at night. Really? Good for you. So you go to bed around what time? <laughs> well, it depends. But, you know, usually by one or two, okay. you've had enough. So, uh, but I can get a good burst in, um, you know, from the like nine to one. See, it's interesting. I mean, everybody writes in different ways. I um, I write first thing in the morning. So I write when when I wrote my book, I would get up at four a.m. and write till seven a.m. You know, so it, it is an interesting thing because they say when you come off of dream state that there's something really. But I think with you coming off of being with the kids. And being with your family, I would imagine all of that inspires story. Well, it changes for me too. Yeah. You know? I mean, sometimes you get into a rhythm where you are, you know, where, where I am getting up in the morning. Yeah. But mo- mostly, it just—I don't know why. It just—I I just feel. I guess I feel the most creative. See, no, and it's kind of whenever they say whenever your muse visits you, you have to listen. So that's good. Um, so starting off, I wanted because I'm I'm so very impressed with your background. I wanted to start. Like, really on some of the personal part. So I love your background as an attorney, and I have worked with so many writers who are attorneys and are now giving up law to write. 
So give me a sense. I'd love for you to take me into the moment that you knew I'm done with law and I want to write. What was that moment? Well, I had always, I think, been creative. I had always enjoyed writing. Um, you know, a huge television and movies fan. Um, and I just got to a point in my career and my life, you know, um, after having been practicing law for almost six or seven years where, you know, I didn't hate it, but I didn't love it either. Um, it was it was somewhat unfulfilling. It wasn't like I, I felt like it was going to be the thing that was going to make me happy for the rest of my life. And what happened was I had an older sister who got sick and had breast cancer and, um, you know, wow. she was sick for a long time, and I remember being in New York, visiting her uh, where she lived in the hospital one night when she was getting chemo, and I was complaining about the law. And she just looked at me out of frustration and said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I don't know. I, you know, I, 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 I want to write movies. You know, I want to make movies. And she said, we'll do it. What are you waiting for? Um, look at me. I'm sort of a perfect example of you don't want to look back on your life and mm. say, what if? So... Um, you know, kind of as corny as that sounds, that was really the moment where it struck me what is holding me back other than my own fears. Yeah. Um, and so I decided to do it. Fortunately, I had an incredibly cool and understanding wife right. who was with me the whole way. She oh. thought it was a fantastic idea, or at least she said so. <laughs> right. right. Did you have uh, kids at that time? When you I had two book? kids at the time. Wow. And, um, and so, you know, I quit. I went in and Gave my notice to the senior partner of the firm. We thought I was crazy, um, and so did a lot of people. But uh, it was incredibly liberating. It was. It was really. I, I mean, I think it's the best thing that we ever did, honestly. So oh, I love that story. Well, it's interesting though when if you think about the story, like I, I honestly think when when our lives are threatened, or the lives of our loved ones are threatened, it sheds a new light on the fact that time is running out. And I think it does make you suddenly go, okay, what is real, what's going to make me happy waking up every day? I mean, so I, I think that's an ama amazing thing that, that it took. You know, I went through breast cancer with one of my best friends who was only 34 when she got diagnosed. And it, it woke every single friend up around her to what am I doing? What do I want to do? What do I love? Because she was constantly shedding light on the fact that, you know, we never know when things are going to end. So, you never do. Yeah. My, my sister was about that age when mm -hmm. she was diagnosed. And it's just, there's, you know, I, always, I tend to refer to it as my come to Jesus moment, you know, yeah. um, just like, what, what am I doing? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I made the change um, and we were flying blind but uh, it was really fun. <laughs> now, and my gosh, the, the first thing you sold was a feature to LeVar Burton's company. How did that happen? Well, that was <laughs> crazy, right? Um, right, that's I, great. Well, you know, I had read about this case in law school that mm -hmm. was actually a United States Supreme Court case um, involving the Scottsboro Boys. And I remember I remembered a little bit about the case, not a lot, but um, when we moved to Tennessee, which is where we moved initially from Dallas, where I was going to hole up in a cabin and write my, you know, my little million-dollar screenplay. Ha -ha. Right. Uh, I sort of found the story again and realized that it had taken place about 40 miles south of where we were living. So I drove down, you know, interviewed some people, went down to Montgomery, Alabama, and went through the archives, just got really into the case, you know, over-researched it now. Looking back in retrospect, I bet I spent six to eight months researching that story um, and, and exactly what happened. And then I just, you know, I was into it and I started mm -hmm. writing. Um, and it's the story of nine African-American kids who were wrongfully accused of rape on a freight wow. train by two wow. white girls, um, all of whom were sentenced to death um, and all of whom, two of them were literally in the chair when they got their reprieves. It's, 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 it's sort of a very big, complicated story, but, in, but basically it was the story of these nine black kids who were absolutely mistreated at the hands of the ju judicial system. Um, so I knew, I didn't know, put it this way, I had a suspicion that this type of material would best be pitched 
to an African-American producer or director. Right. So I literally went to the Walmart in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I bought the Hollywood Creative Directory. That's great. Which had, you know, the names of all the the people. Right. Um, And I wrote letters. I started writing letters to all of the African-American producers and directors that were in there and said, hi, I'm David (laughs) in Tennessee. I have this script. Would you like to read it? Um, oh, this is a great story it's, it's, for I mean, everybody can, I, I, to hear. I think back about it now about oh about God, what an amazing. idiot I was and, no, and how naive. No, that's not an idiot. Um, no. And you know, I was living in a very small town in Tennessee, and I became close friends with the postmaster because it was a highlight of my day to go get my mail. Right. And he knew, is you know, he's like, "Hey, did you hear back from so and so yet?" Right. Um, but you know, Lavar got my letter and said, "Yeah, send me the script," and I sent it to him, and he read it, and he liked it. And I flew to Dallas to meet him, and um, he said, I want to, you know, I want to, I can't remember if he said I want to buy it or I want to option it, but it, all I heard was somebody wants to pay me for my work. Right. I was thrilled. Oh I was elated. God. So he optioned, he had a deal at Showtime at the time, and um, he optioned the script uh, from me. And we took. Okay, that is, that, this is so good for all the listeners to hear because you like created that destiny. I mean, I have so many writers who are so fearful. Can you leave one profession and start a writing career? And that is such a fine example of how you utilized what your profession was and put that into your your destiny. I mean, that's fantastic. Well, I figured, you know, why, <laughs> I have this law. Right. This this base of knowledge, um, you know, why not use it? Um, you know, and as far as writing letters <laughs> to people, I, I I do not recommend that as perhaps the best way to approach selling uh, something. But in my case, you know, it happened to work. And you know, quick funny story is right. that um, you know, cut to here we are. What is it, ten to twelve years later? And I'm actually friendly with Lavar, and I ran into him recently, and he right. said, you know, what I remember about that is I paid that option with my own money. And my wife reminds me of it every day because nothing happened with it. Really? You know, yeah. Um, but he, he's a great guy. Aww. And I'll always remember LeVar as the first person. It's a very to, big to, story. I mean, that's a yeah. very, but I love that you tackled that as your first. I think that, um, like what I have to say, I think about look, my sister's a lawyer and my mom's a lawyer. So it's, I grew up and yet I think the writer is is underneath in both of them. So it it is a fascinating thing because I think when you're in the legal profession and you're exposed to all these human stories where justice is such a huge part of the outcome, it's story, you know? And so I, I definitely, and I think, you know, many law students, I mean, you have English background, you're writing all the time, you're acting when you're in court. I mean, it's all a creative process, you know? So... I, I agree, and you know the a trial lawyer, which is what I was. It's all about storytelling. You know, yeah. you're basically getting up and telling a story to the jury. And you know, they say don't let your prejudices, your emotions, factor into your decision. Well, that's bullshit. That's exactly what you want people to do. Right. You're trying to appeal to them. I mean, it's communication is yes. really what it is. Both in the court as a trial lawyer, and also in the appellate practice when you're writing, you're just communicating with people and you're telling them a story. So I felt like the legal background was a huge plus. Yes. And then when I got out here and started trying to get a job in television, I realized it was absolutely a plus. Right. It it Good. really it really it really does it, it does help. Now, as far as like your first agent or manager, how did that happen? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> I you know once I got out here and wanted to get into television, I had to write my specs. Right. And, um, you know, what was your first spec? I, my first two specs were I did a Six Feet Under and a West Wing. I think I may have read both. Yeah. Yeah. yeah those great. were my favorite shows yeah. at the time. You know, and I tell people. All the time, who sort of ask me about how to get into television, I always say, have two good spec scripts. I mean, to me, that's the most basic thing you can do. Right. So I had those two specs, and I was at a birthday party in Santa Monica, and I was introduced to David Kissinger, who I was blown away by because I was like, that's Henry Kissinger's son. Right. And my sister-in-law said, no, stupid. He's the president of – I don't know what his position was at the time. He was was an exec at NBC. She said, give him your scripts. I said, no, I don't want to be that guy who, like, goes up to somebody at a party and hands it. She said, no, this is how it works, man. You you know, you meet him. You don't have to go give it to him right now. Right. But go, go make an introduction and then send them to him. So I did, and David read them, and he liked them, and he set a meeting up for me, and um, I got an agent on April Fool's Day. I thought I was being punked. I love it. See, 
again, this is such a good message for everybody listening because when I hear these stories, I remember there was, I think it was Jill Goldsmith, who's an attorney, and she came out here and she knew no one and she'd given up a prominent law career and she was in coffee, in line for coffee in Santa Monica and happened to be standing behind this gentleman who she later, who she, he says, oh, you're, you're a writer? Yeah, I'm a writer. Oh, well, you should send me something. It was David Milch. Uh. You know, it's like you sit there and you just go, you never know where it's going to happen. So you have to, you, but you put, you put fate, I mean, you pushed it. And I, that's, you, you have to make things happen. Like when you say, I don't know that I would write letters today. I would write letters today, especially feature wise. TV wise, it might be a little harder to write, just write a cold letter. It's right. easier to know people. But, but feature wise, I think they're so hungry for a concept that could have any legs that I think they do go through everything. You know, and certainly I'd have to say TV is in a much stronger place right now than features anyway. Right. So. <laughs> so I am told. Yeah. Yes, yes, <laughs> so I yes, understand. Definitely. Um, now, I've been a fan of your voice for so many years. Um, I'm, I'm curious about what fuels you to write. So the law and seeing those stories kind of fueled you. The idea of your sister having her time shortened. Is she okay? No. No, she actually she died ten years oh, ago. I'm so so sorry. she ended up passing away. Yeah. So um, how long was it after the diagnosis? Let's see. So that she, fuels she, your writing. She, yeah. Well, she was she was ill for two and a half years, and she went into remission, and then it came back. And she wow. was a doctor herself, wow. so she knew it was coming. And it was very difficult, but you know. Um, Is she I in think, your stories? Would you say? You know, I. I I write about her subconsciously all the time. I know yeah. I have yeah. never written explicitly about her, but that story is in me. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why, by the way, I love this show called The Big C. Right. Um, I, I do really, too. I, I really thought that was. Those lo- the last you know, three episodes. Somebody went in and pitched a show about cancer. Good I for know. them. And then I, I watched it. And, you know, well, Lord, Lenny's fantastic anyway. But yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, she, she's always going to be there influencing me somehow. Right. Um, but, you know. Um, maybe one day I'll have the I'll have the the guts and the time and the distance to write about it yeah. you know, specifically. That's so. what it takes sometimes. So mm-hmm. healing's a big process. Yeah, the sibling. Oh, can't imagine. Um, so let's see. Now, as far as out of all the shows that you've worked on, um, you know what's fascinating to me? I have to say, um, when I think about Everwood and Friday Night Lights, it's like. Friday Night Lights really took a storyline storyline from Everwood and made it into a series. Like, I really have always thought of it that way. I thought what they did was they really took a storyline and they made it into this powerful series because they dug much deeper into what it was and what the experience was. You know, you know? I, it's, it's funny because I think what attracted me to ever would in the first place other than Greg Berlani who created and ran the show yeah. and was you know sort of my he was my first boss and, oh, and very much a mentor a great guy and a good writer um, and not just because he was the first guy to hire me right no it was a show about a small town that I found very appealing right and Friday Night Lights I never thought was about football as much as it was about that small town and for whatever reason I, I was very a- attracted to that world and also shows that were very strong on character and you know I'm from the south Mm -hmm. um, Texas and Mississippi and I think you were talking about voice earlier I think that's where a lot of my voice comes from I mean I grew up in a very large family where to get attention at the large meals you had to be able to tell a good story and make people laugh right my cousin Doug could entertain people around the campfire after dinner Mm -hmm. not that we had dinner (laughs) outside all the time but but there's this definite feeling of storytelling that yes. sort of came up. And I think it's partly a Southern thing, but also a familial thing. And then the other thing I think about, you know, especially with Friday Night Lights and, and, and somewhat with Everwood is I tend to like writing shows and, and watching shows that are, are, are more real. Right. You know, um, one of the things we're constantly doing in the room on Friday Night Lights, for example, was asking, okay, that's great, but what would really happen? And I just, I tend to relate 
to shows that are, you know, that's different, sh- different shows have different it. tones. Yes. You know, there's magical reality yeah. and night and And I, you know, but I, I just like those shows because I thought they were very um, real portraits. Well, and um, you push the envelope. Like, I like the idea of looking under, like, when they when a girl gets the reputation of being a slut. Like, what is that? And what goes into that? And, and, and how does that make a person feel who's in the center of it, the people around her? How do you move past that? I mean, it was so just, oh, love it. I love it. And there's so many issues that you guys have covered that I just, I am so upset the show is done i can't even tell you i can imagine i mean that's like oh everyone i know who watches it is like going through withdrawal i mean it's oh wild okay so going into the truth behind the glory of being a working writer or the perceived glory what would you say your more rewarding and your most humbling moment to date has been so far well, the most rewarding moment, you know, probably for any writer is to see your work on screen. And that's one of the reasons I love television so much. You know, you can work in the feature world and labor and labor and labor, and it may take years and years for something you've written to get to screen. In television, it's it's not the opposite, but it's pretty close. You know, from the time you break a story to write the script to shoot to air, you know, there's there's a, it's a very short amount of time, relatively speaking. So the rewarding moment is when you see something that you've written on screen. You know, I, and I should probably back up and say, and this happened to me on my very first episode, it's being on set and watching the actors interpret and act something you've written is also pretty cool. Right. Um, so it's a combination of the, seeing something that you've done actually Come, come produced, to life. Come to, yeah. Absolutely yeah. come to life. And, you know, television being an incredibly collaborative medium, you really, you, you really get a sense for um, how much better things can be. Mm-hmm. Um, you also get a sense for how much worse they can be in right. certain cases. Yes. But so that would be my most my most rewarding moment. My most humbling moment would definitely be the cancellation of my show, Past Life, that I did. Yeah. You know, it was hugely disappointing. That was disappointing. Um, and an incredible for me. learning experience. Yeah. Uh, you know, and what so What do you think went into that? What do you think led well, to you know, it was a big swing. Um, um, share the concept of the, the show. concept of past li- past life came to me as a book. Mm-hmm. I had a, I had a, a pilot deal at Warner Brothers, and they sent me this book called The Reincarnationist, which was a novel, and I read it, and I, you know, I thought it was a very interesting world. I didn't know anything about reincarnation. I happened to flip on Oprah because, you know, that's what I do. I flip right. on Oprah. <laughs> I happened to flip on Good Oprah ideas. and saw they, they were doing a, a three-show special on reincarnation with the other. I, I just felt like it was in the zeitgeist. Um, mm-hmm. I thought it was a very cool sort of unexplored world and area. Um, and so I bit it off and, mm-hmm. and said, you know what? I think there's a show here. Let's try and make it. Um, and we did, knowing full well Throughout the process, that the you know the big risk of the project was that the material was incredibly polarizing. Right. Um, you know, as Peter Roth, president of Warner Brothers, kept telling me, you know, if we can get people to buy in to the premise of the show, you know, it can be on the air forever. If we can't get them to buy in, then it won't. And right. you know, he was right. And ultimately, people did not buy in. I remember when we tested the pilot. You know, which is the most incredibly nerve-wracking experience any writer can, can go through imagine. to see people literally, you know, in real time responding to your work. Um, there were people who literally tuned out in the first – once they heard the word reincarnation, they just tuned out. So – and we knew there was always going to be that portion right. of the audience that, you know, just weren't going to weren't going to tune in. But what we were hoping is that we could get people that would be willing to make the buy, to willingly suspend disbelief – and it really wasn't even that because unlike an alien show, right. this, you know, reincarnation is, you know, one of the, you know, two thirds of the world's population believes in it. And yeah. so it was just it was incredibly difficult subject matter. Um, and by the way, my lead did not have a superpower. Yeah. Um, and I say that only, you know, somewhat facetiously. You yeah. Know, because. Um, so it wasn't like set up like medium where visions came. Right. And, it was right, not. Yeah. It was not. And I, yeah. and, you know, I, I think that hurt us. Yeah. Um, but I, I, the experience itself uh, in terms of, of the writing and running the show and yeah, the people that I worked great. with was absolutely invaluable. I yeah. loved it. We shot in Atlanta. 
I loved my actors. I still keep in touch with them. Aww. And, you know, it was, it was, but then that was again, your baby, of that was, it was your baby, you know, yeah. and when they call to say, I'm sorry, but your baby is no more. It's, yeah. it's you know, it's hard. Um, and you to go took through. from being a staff writer to creating your own show. That was six years. So that was not long. That was really good. Yeah. I mean, did you feel like when you got the news that your show was picked up, was there like this terror of do I know enough from the last six years or did you feel really ready when? I felt sheer elation, first right. of all. Right. Um, I was in my office with, and, I put, and I put Kevin Riley and, and Peter on speakerphone so my right. wife could hear it from the kitchen Aww. and we jumped for joy and we screamed. You know, that was the highest of the high. I mean, we all had such great expectations at that point. Right. Um, there were some management changes that went on after that. And you know how that's that, that, yeah. that's part of the business. So you yeah. go, I, I felt absolutely ready and ready to go. And, you know, I still feel like, um, it, you know, the show running job is a very interesting thing because the writing part of it is huge, but it's not everything. There's a mm-hmm. huge managerial part of the job, too, mm-hmm. which I happen to love. Um, but you just you just you go from this incredible feeling of oh my god we did it you know we right. got picked up to holy shit they need you know we yeah. have we start we start shooting in, in eight weeks we got to get busy I got to hire a writing staff right and then everything sort of crashes in and you're working pretty much around the clock right um, especially in the first year of a show yeah um, I found it incredibly invigorating yeah um, but you know. But that was I remember I remember when I was at Spelling and I remember reading a book that I was so blown away by and I brought it to my president who was Jonathan Levin at the time and I said, you know, I think we should do this. I think this is phenomenal and it was um, many masters many lives. Mm. You I'm sure you've oh, heard yeah. about that. Yeah. No, we talked about that. Yeah. So I think so, CBS had circled yeah, it, right? Then yeah. I got to CBS Paramount and found out that they uh, we couldn't get the rights for it because I think somebody else had the rights at that time. And then I went to when I, I was promoted at CBS Paramount and went over there and heard it was in their realm. I was so excited, but then nothing ever came of it. And I'm like going, like, what is it about that concept? Because for me, like, and I think you really you're taking non-believers and you, you have the challenge of turning them into believers. And I think when you do fantastical, as you mentioned, or you set, set up psychic, which for whatever reason people will buy into more because we all have intuition and we all have little psychic experiences so when you expand upon that i think people will buy that but i think reincarnation when you said two-thirds of the world i i didn't even realize that so that that really is a fascinating thing because my my gut tells me that there is a way to and in as you say maybe it's just the timing that people have to be ready for that that could really, be that you could know, be i mean yeah. maybe somebody you know maybe somebody smarter than me can crack it I, you know no it's, but it's, i it's, think it's, what you said like what you learned i think will be great for other people who want to tackle it right, out there like how right. you approached creating the character and going into that part and i think even if you take a little liberty and you do go into the fantastical but you're still exploring what that is then who knows well americans americans are incredibly interesting to me and that you know any any time you have material or subject matter that that the label spiritual can be attached to it's just you know oh yeah it's it's tough because you know there's people are so you know opinionated about Mm -hmm. those times i mean i remember wasn't there some show book of daniel that was on the air i know that people have been trying to do mega church shows forever so you know, I, look, it was like I said, it was a fantastic experience, and I love the people that I worked with. I wish we could have. Uh, there were some great episodes that didn't I air, know. <laughs> but maybe I'll just watch them, you know, at home in my boxers Do you on know, my TiVo. I remember. <laughs> my yeah, TiVo. it's it's so true. I remember when I was at Spelling. I think my the show that crushed me the most that didn't get picked up, and it and only five episodes aired, and it was on NBC on a Friday night at eight o'clock, and it was called The Round Table. And it was about young, um, young 20-somethings in Washington. But for whatever reason, the time wasn't right for it. 
you know, like today, I think it could totally work, you know, because of our consciousness right now and our interest and our intrigue in that, you know. So it is interesting how timing will go into things. Um, all right. So, going well, I mean, the thing is that you got to take from this is you created one show, you're going to create another. And you touched upon something that I thought was really interesting. You touched upon liking the managerial side of show running. Um, because I, I often find, like in my own experience of working with showrunners, I often found that either the showrunner hated the managerial side and almost resented it because it took them away from the writing or and loved the writing side or the opposite. So, and I, I always found showrunners who were kind of split down the middle. And I, I worked with a few who truly loved both sides of the process. But I, I would have to imagine... Like one thing that I would worry about with the hierarchy and the managerial aspect of it is that I feel like sometimes it, it made the showrunner fear writing a script again because they, they got so into the managerial part that they didn't write as much. So then the fear was when they did write, you know, what, what would you say about that? You know, I think everybody's different. Um, it may be managerial is not the best word to use. I, I mean, I guess what I'm really referring to is the production aspects, mm -hmm. you know, working with the directors, doing your tone meetings, oh, yeah. doing your concept no, meetings. That, yeah. But mostly spending time in post, which I really enjoy, and which is really, you know, one Editing, of the, yeah, which is storytelling. Editing, yeah. exactly. Um, you know, those are all parts of the job that, yeah. that I enjoyed. But I, but I never, I, you know, I always, I was in the writer's room at least once a day, sometimes two or three times a day, sometimes all day, just depending on where we were in the season, what was going on. A lot of that has to do with hiring the best writing staff you can hire. And if you've got the right people in the room that you can trust to keep things moving forward when you're not in there, then it's, you know, I don't think it's a problem. And, and a lot of this, by the way, is just, you know, it's, it's from people that I've worked with. I mean, Jason Kadams is an amazing showrunner. I learned how to run he a is. show, yeah. you know, working with him yeah. for four years um, until I came back. Uh, so, you know, you, you, you sort of absorb the styles and, and yes. the methodology, I guess, of the people you come up under. Um, but, but to me, it, that part of the job is, is, can be as equally creative as literally breaking stories and writing scripts. Okay. And by so the way, when, when, you're, when, when you're on episode, <laughs> you know, when you're on episode nine, um, the writing, the writing, you're just like, oh my god! I can imagine. Here comes another one. I know. Because you're constantly feeding the machine in television. Yeah. You, know, you finish one, here comes another. Yeah. So. And you just wake up at Groundhog Day. Yeah. Exactly right. <laughs> and exactly you just right. Keep going. Um, so now you touched upon something interesting. You said if you have a stellar writing staff. So what? So was past life your first experience where you, because it was your show, got to assemble this? And yes. what was that experience for you? Like, what did you look for when you were looking for that perfect staff? I looked for two things. First and foremost um, was good writing, um, which meant somebody who had a voice. Mm -hmm. um, and second of all, because it's television and because I was putting a room together, I looked for somebody who could work well in a room environment. You have mm -hmm. to be able to play nice with others in television. On most shows, not every show has a room where people get together every day and break story. I understand that. Right. But I've, all the shows I've been on have, and my show was that way. So, you know, the first step is, you know, the agencies in town send you stacks and stacks and stacks of scripts. And so you have to go through everything um, and do your homework. So I started early. Then they give you a budget and they say, here's what you've got. Go make your hires. And you want to hire a good mix, you know, yeah. of men, women, of of uh, geographical, cultural backgrounds, of experience level. You know, I always liken it to putting together a pitching rotation in baseball. You know, you right. want to have you want to have your closers. Yeah. You want to have your solid mid-inning relief people. Um, you know, I don't think there's any science to it. It's probably more of an art. But when I would meet with people, I think you just get a vibe, yeah. you know, fairly quickly. Is this somebody I would want to sit in a room with? For 10 know, hours all, or 12 yeah, hours a day. exactly. Day after day after <laughs> yeah. day. You know, I think I know they can write. I've, right. read, their, I've read their work. Um, and so you try and just sort of come up. I, I mean, in the end, I think it's mostly a gut thing. Yeah. Although, of course, you do your due diligence. And yeah. people around town, especially people who've been working here for long enough, will be able to tell you, oh, yeah, I know so-and-so. They worked for me on blankety-blank. And, you know, and now I'm getting those calls about people that I've worked with. And, and so um, you just... 
you know, you try and put together the best team that you can, and um, and then you get in there on that first day. <laughs> so what here we are. Did I make? Here no. we are. <laughs> Uh, but but I, I will say, in terms of, of what I was looking for in writers, you know, there's the old saw or axiom or adage or whatever you want to call it that I heard when I was first starting about oh. how somebody can tell if your script's any good in the first 10 pages. It's true. Right. You know, especially yeah, in television. You can, you can tell two you or can. three pages in if the person— Your opening is so important. Yeah. If, yeah. If, it, it is. It yeah. really is. And then you can also tell very quickly somebody who understands— how to get in in and out of a scene? Yeah, uh, who you know who understands, you know the voice of the character. I mean, if you're writing a spec, yeah, um, of Modern Family, for example, right. your characters should fucking sound like the characters in yeah. Modern Family. Yeah, and so if they don't, it's like okay, you know, thank yeah. you, and you can move on. So, yeah. but but then again, you know, I, the conversations among showrunners all the time. Oh, did you hear about so and so, this great new person? And it all comes down to the voice. Yeah, it's what does the writer have that's different from everybody else? If I read. Ten law and orders. Is there one that's going to stand out to me because that person has given me a take on yes. a character? Um, and when that happens, and you come across it, and it pops, it's it's great. That's it's the most like, exciting thing for me too. I would have to say, like when you see the potential of a voice, and then you understand that you can provide and guide them into the possibility of being heard, is probably my favorite part of my job. So I, I get I get that. And it is an interesting thing because I'll have writers who will say to me, like, where do I – I've probably read 4,000 scripts by this point. And they'll say, where do I fall or what – and in it, you know, writing is a practice. It's like yoga. So if you're at the earlier stages of the practice, it's not to say your voice is never going to get – where some of the more experienced writers get. Some people, I think it does take your seven, eight, nine, ten years to really come into it. Other writers, right out of college, you see it. And and it is a fascinating thing, but it's almost like life has to fill in the voice. So you can have a college student whose parents passed away in some horrible accident and they became an old soul in a young body and because they had to deal with the independence of moving forward in life it comes up in the work you know so it really is it's fascinating like when I when I went into when I came out of the studio I threw myself into really understanding story and every single aspect of story and I I studied like all the Emmy nominated shows and Golden Globe and Academy uh, nominated features, and I thought, what is the common component that these stories have? And for me, like what I pulled out of it and what I teach is you start your story with a powerful dilemma, and you stem a goal that comes out of that dilemma, and every act out needs to connect back to that goal. And when I, what I found was when story doesn't work, it's because the goal's not clear. And you don't know what your character wants. So hang, you don't. Hang on, I'm writing this down. <laughs> <laughs> That's everything I teach. <laughs> I'm like 18 years of analyzing story. Uh, right. It took me about, it took me honestly about 14 before I was able to extract yeah. that. Uh, you know, it's funny. Ours was usually, well, when can we get Riggins with his shirt off? You know, is that act three or act four? <laughs> I love I love that actor. That's a great. He's a great actor. Yes, he yeah, is. that's great. Yes, he is. All right. So going into Friday Night Lights. So you. So Friday Night Lights and Parenthood. These are shows with so much heart, and so much vulnerability. Like what? Um, what did you like looking at Friday Night Lights? What were What were some of the challenges with it, and what were some of the rewards? With thinking of story for it. Thinking of story. That's a good question. Um, well, the challenge of Friday Night Lights was everybody thought it was a show about football. Mm -hmm. And it was about football. And we did have football games. And it was a story about a football team. But it was also more so, I think, about this town and, and these people. The game of it. life. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. That revolved around, mm -hmm. you know, this this idea of football. I mean, I honestly, I, I, originally I didn't want to do the show um, and my agent kept seeing my agent kept saying, "Go see, go watch the pilot, go watch the pilot." I said, "You know what? I grew up in Texas. I knew kids that were on that team that the right. movie was based on. Um, I get it, but I don't really want to do it." And he just kept saying, "Go, go, go." And so I finally I went in and I watched the pilot and I came out and and I had already, 
come pretty close to taking another job. Uh-huh. Um, and, and I came out, I said, this is incredible. I mean, I couldn't believe that Pete Berg had paralyzed the quarterback in the pilot yeah. episode. And I said, well, that's a kind of show yeah. that's going to do something different and real and raw. I, I want to be involved with that. Um, so, you know, challenge number one, we had a character who's in a wheelchair. Right. Uh, that was a challenge. Who um, be who started as what felt like more of the central character, but then kind of shifted. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, literally, we sat in the room that first season and mm-hmm. thought, how do you, you know, how do we write this story where a it's not depressing as hell yeah. each week, yeah, and b where you know, so that's y- challenging. Yeah, and yeah. so we had to do a, you know, we, we, I, I think we found a way to do it. You did, but that yeah. was that that was a challenge. Um, you know, um. The, the other challenge is something that I think you face any time you have a show with high school, which is, you know, what do you do when, when the kids graduate? Um, and from the beginning, Pete Berg, who, you know, who directed the pilot, had told the actors, this isn't, a sh- this isn't Welcome Back, Cotter, um, where, you know, the kids are in high school for a decade. Right. Um, I stole that line from Jason Kadams, by the right, way. He always right. says that. I think I it's a very that. apropos description. You know, they're going to graduate and life's going to go on. Right. Um, so but that they was gonna... ha- you guys handled that Oh, we repopulated. They re- yeah, you know, moved them to the other side of awesome. town, repopulated. Um, and I had nothing to do with that, by the way. Right. That was the year that I was gone doing right. past life. But I watched it as a fan, and I was fascinated. Right. Um, so that was a challenge. And then, you know, other than that, it was it was the fact that nobody was watching, and we were sort of constantly, um, you know, in in fear of being canceled, which doesn't enter into the writer's room, believe it or not. You're right. never thinking about that. Yeah. It's only when you come up for air and come out of the room and everything, go, oh, wow. Um, yeah. All right, do we need to prepare yeah. for next season? Um, so that was a challenge, too. Nobody – now, the fascinating thing when you say things like nobody was watching, yet the critics were watching. And and the fact that Friday Night Lights survived being canceled by NBC and making the move to to direct TV and then being brought back to NBC. I mean, I, to me, that's the little show that had such a huge heart that, you know, so I think that's so – that's it always had yeah. a very, very yeah. devoted fan base, yeah. which we, which I, you know, to this day appreciate. Yeah, uh, you know, people, people who, who know the show love the show. Yeah, um, and and it's great. And then, know? and then, what would you say? Like, say, going from Friday Night Lights to Parenthood, I have to imagine the experience of mm-hmm. family and issues definitely carried over too. what would you say the difference was between- well um for me i think the shows are a little bit different tonally mm-hmm. i think we went a lot very um, different deeper tonally, and darker but, on friday night yeah. lights than we go on parenthood um i think originally and 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 still to some extent i think parenthood tends to be um have more comedy in it right or at least lighter more stories. like a dramedy yeah um you know but they're both big ensemble casts uh, the main difference for me, as a writer, being in the room on Parenthood is there's no, you know, Friday Night Lights, we had an engine. Right. And the engine was the football season. Right. So we knew we had a game. If there's no game this week, there's going to be one next week. Oh, it's bye week or we have homecoming coming up. Oh, mm-hmm. then we get the playoffs and what are the Lions going to do? So you had this built-in engine. Right. In Parenthood, you don't have that. Yeah. So it's, it's just Parenthood. It's just yeah. Parenthood. Yeah. So you, you have to, it's, it's, I think it's more difficult. Yeah. Um, but... You know, those are the challenges that, yeah. that you just sort of, I mean, that's why you get in a room full of people and you figure it out together. Yeah. No, that's great. Um, now, and we touched upon this easily, but we'll, we'll answer, we'll go into this. So now you said the writer's rooms on both shows, you worked in the room and broke story and then would the writer go off and write the script? Yes. Okay. So yes. did that work well? Yes. Okay. I, I think it works really well. Um you know, and, and as the, as the season goes on, inevitably you have some writers who may be out working on a script, right? And you know, for a couple of days, and they come back in. It's the, the room becomes this sort of you know living, oozing entity over the course of a season, right? But on on every show I've been on, um, we've had a we've had a room, um, a very strong room, uh, that has really that has really done. Um, the majority of you know we essentially we break the story. Well, let me back up and say on both Friday Night Lights and Parenthood, and this is a Kadem thing, and I also brought it to my own show. Is is you um, 
you know, we arc out the seasons and the characters, right. what, what's going to happen before we even get started. And then we start in on the episodes one by one and okay. we build from there. And even then, we tend to do them in movements. You know, what's the first six episodes of the season? What's, you know, what's that movement like? And right. then we'll move to the, you know, it's beginning, middle and end, sort of writ larger. Um, and so, but as long as you've done that work ahead of time, I think it makes the job easier. Right. So who do you connect with the most on Parenthood? And, like, would you say that maybe you draw from your kids in any of the characters on Parenthood? And do your kids watch Parenthood? Zeke, Adam, yes, and yes. Okay. Oh, that's great. <laughs> that's great. You know? Yeah. There you go. Yeah. And, by the way, um, you know, I just think Peter Krause, who plays Adam, yes. is, is so fantastic. Yeah. Um, and Monica Potter, who plays his wife. Is mm-hmm. he, and I just identify with that couple. And one of the things about Parenthood that is different is – the kid on the show who has Asperger's or autism, yeah. Jason Kadams has a son right. with Asperger's, and he wasn't sure if he wanted to write about it or not in Parenthood and decided to do it. And I'm glad he did because I'm I mean, really it, glad it, he really, did. it really has been um, a great journey to watch this kid and to talk about. I've, I've learned more about that subject, you know, in the last year than I ever would have otherwise. Right. Uh, it, it, but I think I think it's interesting and different, and it's and it's and it's good storytelling. Yeah. So, no, I um, would totally agree. But I can watch Zeke all day. I yeah. just think he's so good. Craig yeah. Nelson is, is I agree. Funny. And, I love and I just, him. I like that character. I loved he's the pilot with him, too. And that, those scenes were just like, oh, my mm-hmm. God. Loved that. Um, all right. Well, great. So we are going to take another break. And then we will be back with David Hudgens uh, from Friday Night Lights and Parenthood. This is Jen Grisanti. You're listening to StoryWise with entertainment consultant Jen Grisanti. StoryWise is a podcast designed to give you the story behind the people who tell stories, offering you insight on what it takes to work as a writer in television and film. Hear this and other podcasts on www.jengrisanticonsultancy.com, a full-service writer consultancy committed to guiding your vision. This is Jen Grisanti. We are back with David Hudgens of Parenthood and Friday Night Lights. So I want to go into really like right now it's staffing season. And right now we have writers panicking all over the place that they're not going to get a chair with musical chairs. Um, What would be some things, some tools that you've learned? Like if you think about the first day of your career to now – that you think, God, had someone told me that, I would have either done things differently or it would have really equipped me to better understand the dynamics of the room, what goes into the writing process. What are some of those things that maybe you learned? Well, that, that's another good question. Thanks. <laughs> um, two things come to mind. Um, the first one is the writer's room. Uh, so I, I'm assuming these are people who have maybe uh, have have had a job before. This isn't somebody to break in for the first time. For me, the biggest mistake that I've seen made in a writer's room is um, people who aren't relevant. And by that, I mean somebody who is constantly talking for the sake of talking, usually sharing personal stories that really have no bearing on what's being discussed. It's more about they want to tell you about their Aunt Ida. Right. Um, and... To, I, I've seen, I've just seen it happen, mm-hmm. um, you know, more than once in my, you know, career. Right. And when it happens, it's just, it's painful to watch because very, very quickly that person loses credibility in the room. They lose truck in the room. So I guess my first, if if you're asking for, for a piece of advice, it would be, my mine would be, you know, don't say something unless you have something to say. Right. Um, and that's just, to me, is just sort of common sense. I mean, again, going back to the idea of television writing, because of the room environment, you have to be able to be collaborative. You have to be able to get along with your peers. And there's no quicker way, I think, to sort of lose the good graces of your boss than to be that person who's constantly talking but contributing nothing. With a close That's second being the person the person who never the person who's constantly shooting pitches down but not offering something. Right. You know, anybody anybody can say that's a shitty idea, but you, you should follow it up with but here's how I'd I'd like you know, here's here's an idea I do have. Right. You know, we used right. to always use the line from H. I. McDonough in Raising Arizona, which is I'd rather light a candle than curse your darkness, you know. Right. 
I so, oh I love so, that. That's so great. that's that that's just sort of room you know room room things. And then the other thing is um, when you get the chance to do that first script um, and your first job, definitely. But in, on any show, really. Um, you, you just, I mean, you have to nail it. You have to do a good job um, on that first script because it's essentially, you know, it's it's literally your first impression, but it, it means so much um, to the person that is reading that script when they read it to be able to say, okay, this person can deliver. Yes. You know, it's like you get that script in, you read it, and you finish it, and you breathe a sigh of relief, and you go, yes, now I know yes. that every time I assign a script to Jen Grisanti, she's going to give me something that's yes. great yeah. that I can use. Yeah. And the converse of that is now I know that every time I give a script to X person, it's going to come in, and it's going to be a page one rewrite. So, And that's not good. So when you get that chance to write that first script, you just, you know, you just have to work your ass off on it. You have to yeah. put everything you have into it to make that. I mean, in every script you want to do this, but I just think the first script is, is particularly important. So you call Jen Grisanti at Jen Grisanti Consultancy. <laughs> there you go. I have it. Whatever I, it takes. I actually Whatever have it takes. a consult called Staying Staffed, and I do. Because I call myself like the secret tool for writers. I've had writers sell pilots that no one has any idea that that we work together. I've had people who tell everybody that we work together. And I like both. It's like I don't care about that. I care about you delivering your best product. Right. Well, people have different skills, by the way, too. I mean, there are are writers who are much stronger at delivering drafts than they are in the room. There are writers who are much stronger at big picture and breaking story in the room and maybe their drafts don't come in quite as strong. So I'm not saying that you, I mean, ideally you're the total package. um, But if you're not, I mean, there's ways to, you know, there's ways to. But uh, work hard is what you're saying. Basically what I'm saying is, yeah, you can't mess around. You got to work hard because. Once you get the job, the true work begins. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's like marriage. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed. We think the hard part is getting there. Uh, Okay, let's see. Um, So with regards to – now, what about, like, say, pilots? What – do you read a lot of pilots when you're staffing? And if you're looking for original voice in pilots, um, do you have any examples of of things that stuck out to you? Um, Let me make sure I understand the question. You mean mean when you're reading writing samples – do you, are you reading pilots? Yeah, that, like if you're reading pilots, what within the pilot script, like do you have any examples of, oh, my God, I read this amazing pilot and this is what the concept was? Um, I would say personally right. it's not the concept as much that I, that you're looking the for, voice. responding yeah. to. It's more about the voice. I mean here's, here's the thing, um, and I'm using my own experience as yeah. an example. I have a feeling it might apply – you know, maybe you can extrapolate outward, but you get all these scripts in. Right. You've got two weeks to put a staff together. Your phone is ringing every five minutes with agents in town pitching their clients. All your friends are calling. Friends are calling. (laughs) So you're trying, and you're trying to make the most informed decision you can make. So, and you're thinking to yourself, what I need is a person that I know can deliver a script to me on a show and can come up with great ideas and can make this show the best it can be. So the easiest way, or maybe the easiest isn't the right word, the fastest, most efficient way is to look at a piece of writing and say, can this person deliver a professional television script? Right. So that if the spec you're reading is of a show that you know, you can figure out very quickly, okay, this person gets the tone How and the voice of this voice. show. They right. can do it. Yeah. If somebody gives you a pilot, it may be incredibly good and you may love it. It's just harder to tell is yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah. I, I mean, I think – I think, and look, there's I, – I know there are showrunners around town who love to read one act. only read pilots. Who love to yeah. read yeah. – they want to hear something original. Et yeah. And good for them and that's right. great. And I think that's important and I have read stuff. I'm glad to have you though because I always say to people, people will say, do I even need spec scripts? It's like, yes, you that's do. That's the biggest yeah. – I mean, that is the thing that I yeah. hammer into – anybody who asks my opinion about right. it, which is because you have to have a calling card. If you're trying to get a job, the person who is about to hire you has to know that you can do the job. And the right. only way that they can make that judgment other than just taking it on faith is to see that you have delivered a television script right. that works. Right. You know, uh, and, you know, obviously there's gradations and levels, right. but, you know, somebody, 
I mean, I read one of the scripts I read, you know, had no act breaks. There was no, you know, and you just sort of realize, wow, well, this is, it may be great in the raw, but but if it's you against three other people who do understand that, guess right. who's going to get the job? Yeah. So, um, you know, it's do a you pain in the butt a... to write specs, but you got to do it. Right. No, and I totally agree. And I actually love, like, when I look at the specs that are coming out right now, like people are starting to write The Walking Dead and Shameless and episodes. And I get excited because it's like a whole new slew mm-hmm. of specs that have kind of very original, different voices that is great, you know? And I think it's allowing almost a combination of a pilot and a spec because some of these shows are so original and so kind of off kilter that I think it allows for the voice to come out. Well, and of course, also a huge part of it is knowing, I I mean, it depends on what you're submitting for. You know, if you're you're submitting for Law and Order, you know, you you should probably submit something that shows you know how to write a procedural. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, so anyway, it it depends, obviously. All right. Now, because we've talked about it so much, I would love to, because you can speak from your own uh, experience, your voice. How would you describe your voice? And at what point in your career would you say you noticed it emerging? Was there an episode? Was there a show? Yeah, that's all. Oh, wow. That's, that's, a, that's a good question, too. I, I mean, I think inevitably it's it's. You know, the voice that I have is traced back to my southern roots and my family um, and growing up with lots of brothers and sisters and cousins where we would mess with each other constantly and we would tell stories and tell jokes. I like to think that there's a lot of, you know, humor in my writing. I tend to go for jokes. Even though I've always written on dramas, I tend to go. And then I like to go, you know, it's funny. I like my characters to sound as real as they can. And everybody has a different ear for dialogue. Mm -hmm. But, you know, a lot of times when I'm writing a character, I'm literally thinking it through in my head, thinking, now, how would, you know, how would this person really say it? Right. As an example, I'll be reading, you may be reading along and you see somebody say something, something, my dear. And I think to myself, nobody talks that way. You know, not that an actor might not be able to deliver that line. So I try and, I try and make it as as real as I can, sometimes to the point of I'll do research. You know, right. I'll stop what I'm doing. I'll click on Google and I'll go over and I'll look. You know, you know, we were doing <laughs> we were doing a scene in Friday Night Lights where Luke had a show pig, right? And he had to talk about this show pig. I don't know anything about show pigs, right? So I went to the 4-H Club website and just you know picked up what I could and right. then tried to sprinkle it in. Um, all like of which, that. all of which is saying that it's just. I, I think it's auth- authenticity is really what you're trying to go for. I mean, look, the, the biggest fear I think that you have in television um, rooms, uh, especially on the kinds of shows that I've been on, is melodrama. You know, yeah. you always want to stay away from the melodrama. You know, the treacle alert. Right. You know, or even when somebody's pitching, you'll say, "Well, I'm in the field of corn here." Yeah. So you know, so there's a constant sort of awareness of we don't want to veer too far into melodrama, and you're always trying to navigate that line. So I always try to bring it back to, you know, what would, you know, how would people really talk in the situation? What what would really, if this were happening to me, you yes. know, if my kid came to me and said, I want to have an abortion, right. I would say that's weird because I only have boys. Right. No. Right. I, I, but, but you know what I mean? It's like, how would you really react? Right. So I, I don't know. I guess that's an answer to my voice. No, I'm also a huge yeah. smart ass. I think it's tempered. Right. Um, as I've gotten older, but right. maybe, maybe younger. You know, one of the interesting things about writing, I think, is, you know, how honest are you going to be with what you're truly writing about, mm-hmm. you know? And, and and maybe maybe that's where really great writing comes from, is yeah. the people who are truly honest. But in practice, in day-to-day, it's hard to do. It is. You know, it's hard to do, but if I guess if you can get there... Um, something good usually comes out of it. Do you know, it's interesting. I had, I put on my Facebook status line um, how fascinating, because I always put writing tips. I usually get my yoga tips. I get my downward dog tips when I suddenly <laughs> think of writing tips. And um, and I remember I saw God of Carnage, and I saw when I was in New York, I saw the motherfucker with the hat that was Chris Rock's play. Mm-hmm. Um, and... What I noticed in both of them is they both had um, lines and also scenes where the characters went a place that we all think of but would never say. 
and they said it and they confronted it and it was like this huge universal fear that you're like oh but there's like this huge relief because you're like oh my god other people feel that like there's something that's so like, oh, my God, my darkness is shared by other exactly. people. I mean, and so, it, exactly. yeah. So I think yeah. hitting those lines is the goal of every writer, seeking truth beneath the story. That's you know? Right. Yeah. I yeah. So I, I think that's great. All right. So to sum up, I want to talk about the fact that I love the things that you talked about in the writer's room, um, and then we will close out with Yeah, I didn't mean to sound so preachy. Of advice. No, that <laughs> wasn't. That, but I'm just telling no, you, No, but I think the biggest thing that you hit on that I don't think anyone has hit on, and I've probably had 30-some-odd guests by this point, is you hit on uh, relevance. And, and that's such a key word. Like, I've, I've helped uh, a lot of, a lot, a lot of writers get ready for the writing programs. And, and in these essays, they'll go on and on and on with story, with personal story, which is great, and I encourage. But you need to have the relevance of how did that story inform your voice? And how did that moment in your life make you want to become a writer? And how do you use that? So I think the idea of relevance and the idea of knowing when to share the personal story and knowing when to shut up, too, because time management in the writer's room is a huge thing, you know. So I think, yeah, I think I think that was a really, really great point. And definitely the other one I've I've heard a lot of showrunners talk about, like if you're going to shoot somebody down, number one, they say lower levels, don't do it. Number two, if you are going to do it, have a better idea. So I think that was that was also something that I want everyone to take note of when you go into the writer room. It's going to save you some humiliating (laughs) moments if you listen. Um, So, okay, so for our very last question, what anything that we haven't covered that you feel could be important to the writer, to the new writer who's pursuing a career? You know, um, I think you have to come to Los Angeles. Yeah, that's you know, a good. I'm sorry. Yeah, I but, agree. But I, you know, I totally have, you agree. Know, I'm sure you have them mm-hmm. too, the people who say, I have hey, them all my, over my the friend US, all over the world. nephew is yep. interested in writing. And I, I, you know, I, I, I just think you have to. I mean, yeah. if you want to be in the, you know, it's like if you want to be a stockbroker, you got to go to Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just the fact and the reality. And when I say Los Angeles, I mean, I guess people go to New York as well. Right. But, but not not only is it, I, I think, necessary, it shows that you're serious about what you're doing and doors can open once you're out here. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's. that's Because relationships are everything. Exactly. Yeah. You never know who you may meet. Yeah. Or who you may be at a party yeah. with and give your script yeah. to. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, as, I, as soon as I say that, you know, there's going to be like some new show where the writer's room is in Racine or yes, something. Yes, I love that. Um. That's great. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I want to thank you so much. I mean, the fact that you took your time away from your, your kids and your wife, and please thank them for sharing you and giving you an opportunity to share all this incredible information. I know everybody is going to appreciate it, and I very much appreciate it. So thank you so much for joining us. And I'm going to go over a few things that I have upcoming event-wise. First, I want to give a shout-out to TV Tracker. This is a website that will give you all the latest information on development, shows in development, current shows, current um, agents and managers, as well as executives. It is a really great website. And full of information so it's a great one for you to check out if you are uh, in need of this and um, also I want to tell you of four upcoming events in June um, I'm going to be doing PitchCon for NAFTI which is at the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel on June 9th um, it's actually going to be June 9th and June 10th you can get more information uh, by looking up PitchCon And uh, actually, before that, I forgot to mention, I am doing the Great American Pitch Fest on Saturday, June 4th. I will be teaching a class there uh, with Jessica Sittomer called How to Succeed in Television. Um, Pitch Fest has got some phenomenal speakers lined up, so I do suggest your 
checking that out and signing up. Um, and then the third week in June, or actually it's June 11th and 12th, I'm doing the screenwriting conference in New York through Movie Maker Screenwriting Institute um, that also has a spectacular lineup of speakers. So if you're interested in learning about screenwriting then and you live in New York, then definitely look into that. It is at Hunter College on June 11th and 12th. And then lastly, um, there is a seminar that is here that is a weekend seminar called the TV Film Summit. And, um, and you can uh, Google TV Film Summit. And that one is going to have Saturday full of speakers for television and Sunday speakers for film, for TV. It's going to be myself, Chad Gervich, Ellen Sandler, and film-wise on Sunday, it's going to be Chris Vogler, Linda Sager, and Dove Simmons. So, um, so those are great events for writers, and I would love to see you guys there. Uh, and thank you so much for joining us. This has been a really terrific podcast with David Hudgens of Friday Night Lights and Parenthood. Uh, this is Jen Grisanti of Jen Grisanti Consultancy, Inc. Thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to StoryWise with Jen Grisanti. If you're looking to get to the next step in your career and need a guide who has been there and knows what it takes, go to www.jengrisanticonsultancy.com. On the website, you can also find the latest on writing programs, feature film festivals, and other writing competitions. This production was recorded at the studios of Icebox Logic.